0: Welcome to 502 Conversations. I'm Brian Kirby, and my guest for this episode is once again Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Offit, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, thank you.
0: You're welcome, and thank you for being here. I don't know if this is our ninth conversation or not. We are taping this on the 28th of January, so by the time it gets edited and published, who knows what's changed. But um, we'll do the best that we can I do have a proper introduction for you. I know that unless you've been living in a cave for a couple of years, you probably know who Dr. Offit is. By the way, that might not have been a bad idea to be in a cave for a couple of years, but (laughs) I will give you a proper introduction. Dr. Offit, you've seen him on CNN, CNBC, PBS NewsHour, even Dr. Oz. You are a pediatrician and a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases and director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. You are an expert on vaccines, immunology, and virology. You are co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine Rototech and a member of Verpac, the FDA Vaccines and Related Biological Products Committee, otherwise known as the Vaccine Advisory Committee. You have published hundreds of papers in medical and scientific journals and are the author of 12 books, including Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong, Bad Advice, Why Celebrities, Politicians, and Activists Are Not Your Best Source of Health Information, Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far, and your latest book published last September, You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccinations, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. And I do have some questions about that, but first, as always... Hopefully not as always, but as always for right now, COVID. We're 13 months into vaccines. Can you give me your state of the situation year over year? Um, I just checked yesterday. I was surprised. I thought it was better than this, but it looks like the U.S. vaccination rate's about 64%. Some states as low as 50, some as high as 80%, but a lot of mid-50s in there. What's your assessment? Um, I think things
1: are about to get better. Uh, And here's why I say that, remembering, although, but I also picked the Philadelphia Eagles to beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And, you know, we were losing 31 to nothing at one point. So I probably shouldn't listen to me, but here's why I think that's true. Um, Right now we have 90% population immunity, meaning from people who have either been um, vaccinated or naturally infected or both. prevalent surveys show that we are at about 90% population immunity. That's good. The largest group of people actually who are who are unvaccinated and likely uninfected are actually people less than 30. So it's the younger people actually who are now sort of at specifically high risk. Um, two is we are about to enter warmer weather. I mean, w- warm weather is a an enemy of this virus at some level. If, even if you look last year, uh, as we moved from like November to December to January to February, um, and we didn't really have a vaccine that was available really till the end of Gen- December, and that was sort of available on a limited basis. And we had far fewer people who were naturally infected. We had much less population immunity. Nonetheless, when we hit last mid-February, you started to see a decline in the number of hospitalizations and the number of deaths, and that sort of can- continued to come down, especially during the summer months. It was way down, and then it came back up again as we moved into fall. So, so I do. Th- do think things are going to get better soon because we have much higher population immunity. So that's good. Um, I think that, that the other thing that's good is that the, the vaccines that were made, um, all of the vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, um, Johnson & Johnson's vaccine, AstraZeneca vaccine, all of them were made against the original strain, the so-called ancestral strain, the Wuhan strain. I mean, that's not the virus that left China. The virus that left China was the first variant because it was more contagious. It didn't have a Greek letter designation. It was called D614G. But that's the one that swept across you know, Asia, Europe, and the US. It was eventually replaced by Alpha, because Alpha was more contagious, by Delta, because Delta was more contagious, and um, by um, the uh, Omicron, because Omicron is actually a little more immune evasive. But the good news is, is that the protection against serious illness has held up. If you're vaccinated with two doses of an mRNA-containing vaccine or two doses of Johnson & Johnson vaccine, then you're not in a high-risk group. You are going to be protected against serious illness. So that's good. The meaning, and then that's because protection against serious illness is mediated by memory cells, memory B cells, memory T helper cells, memory cytotoxic T cells, and those recognize those epitopes, those immunologic components that are fairly well conserved. So that's good. The, the one thing that does worry me, though, is Omicron, and, and not for the reasons you might think. But what worries me about Omicron is it's not that, that, that if you're previously actually infected or you're previously vaccinated, that you wouldn't be protected against serious disease than you are. It's the number of mutations on the receptor binding domain. That, that was a dramatic leap from where we were on Delta. I don't think anybody ever thought coronaviruses would act like flu, where you know, you would actually call this drift. But I think this is drift, and you, you always worry that it's going to drift more. But for now, I think we're good.
0: So you're saying you're worried about the Omicron drifting more into like a super Omicron? Okay, go ahead. Or just- no, I'm, I'm
1: worried that, there, that this virus now has the capacity to drift, and that although Omicron still retains those um, confirmationally conserved epitopes that are recognized by memory cells, memory B cells and T cells, that this virus may, may have the capacity to evade that meaning to create uh, um, mutations on those regions, those conserved regions. If that happens, then we're talking about another vaccine. Then we're talking about a variant-specific vaccine. We don't need a variant-specific vaccine yet. We'll see this, this second, this sort of this Omicron sister virus. Um, th- we're learning more about that. It, it may be a little more contagious, we'll see. Um, but again, I don't think that virus is likely to escape protection by, uh, against serious disease, I'll, I'll give you specifically an example of what I mean. It, it, during that Provincetown outbreak last July 4th, Provincetown, Massachusetts, right? So thousands of men get together, celebrate July 4th. And then there's an outbreak of COVID. Even though 79% of those men were vaccinated, fully vaccinated, nonetheless, 346 got COVID. Four were hospitalized. That's a hospitalization rate of 1.2%. That's great. That's a vaccine that's working. Um, I, I, I think if that was 10% 20 percent or becomes 10 percent or 20 percent or 30 percent now you're talking about a a vaccine that's not working so you need another vaccine the one thing i wish we'd stop doing is counting cases i mean the the natural infection or vaccination will protect against moderate to severe disease it's not going to protect as well against mild disease so you're going to see mild disease you get a flu vaccine to protect you against moderate to severe disease if you get a mild upper respiratory tract infection associated with flu that's okay And, and, you know, we treat this uh, in a manner as if we're trying to get sterilizing immunity. We have this, like, zero tolerance for mild upper respiratory tract infections, and that's going to drive us and is driving us crazy.
0: I will come back to that um, because I did have a specific question about that. But first, I want to go into public outreach because did I hear you correctly the other day saying that you're going to be involved in some public outreach with uh, doctors Ezekiel Emanuel and Anthony Fauci? It's not public
1: outreach. Uh, at least that's not my, my, my understanding. <laughs> well, <I'm, laughs> I don't
0: I don't have any clue. I just I kind of heard it go by. So that was my term. So you tell me what's going on.
1: <laughs> uh, do, Dr. Emanuel, Zeke Emanuel, has put together a team to that essentially it, it advised the White House uh, COVID team about sort of how we move into the new normal. That's what that is. So that's. I mean, I, I'm not sure when that will be made public, but the fact that it, it exists has already been made public. I know that Dr. Emanuel was on PBS NewsHour with Judy Woodruff talking about that. So that phenomenon is already public.
0: OK, so you're working as a White House advisor then going into this. Well,
1: exactly. I mean, yeah, we, we we're working. I'm working on a team that will eventually advise the White House on this. Year.
0: Well, speaking of public outreach, I don't know if you followed this or not, but I, I, I read this, something about the Florida Surgeon General that was just confirmed. During the confirmation hearings, he uh, sort of tacitly, begrudgingly admitted that the vaccines are effective and work. He's going to be the face of the health department in Florida. That's public outreach. He's an authority people can refer to. Do you have any comment on that or you want to stay away from it?
1: No, no, sure. I mean, he was asked a very simple question. Do vaccines work? And and he was asked by that state senator to answer that as in a yes or no manner. That's an easy question to answer, a yes or no matter. Yes, they work. Because what's the definition of working? The definition of working is they are dramatically effective at preventing hospitalization and ICU admission and death. Dramatic. I mean, when you see in hospitalization rates of 1% or so in people that are infected with COVID, that's Excellent. That's working well. He eventually got to the answer. I mean, eventually he did say that these vaccines are effective at preventing um, uh, severe disease. True. And then he said, but they're ineffective at preventing uh, mild disease. That's not true. They're they're pretty effective. They're just not as effective at preventing mild disease. So it was a political answer. I mean, it tells you that he felt that at least the zeitgeist in Florida meant that he couldn't just come out and, and, and say vaccines work, which is, of course, absurd. Similarly, I mean, uh, Governor DeSantis has, has con- continued to want to give monoclonal antibodies that don't recognize epitopes on Omicron. I mean, there is a monoclonal antibody um, that does do that, but that's not the one he was using. And he said, but, but, but he's seen that it works. <laughs> like, it can't work. It doesn't recognize the, any epitopes that's on that virus. So it can't work. Um, so what he's saying is, you know, people have gotten it. And they've lived. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, people got hydroxychloroquine and lived. You know, people, I'm sure, have, you know, put garlic around their necks and lived. It, It doesn't, it's not a proof.
0: Let's go back to what you were talking about with cases and the definitions of them. A few days ago in the Journal of American Medical Association, they published a research letter comparing Moderna and Pfizer breakthrough cases. But an interesting sentence was, this is how they defined it. We included breakthrough cases. Defined as positive lab tests for the presence of SARS-CoV-2 RNA. Okay, I see you're shaking your head. And the question I have for you is a lot of people I know that have been diagnosed with COVID, they had no idea, but they were diagnosed because either their workplace or the school is testing everybody weekly. They got tested, they were positive, they have to stay home, a couple aches and pains. This JAMA letter defined that as a breakthrough case, apparently. What do you say? It's the biggest communication error we made, I think, in this,
1: in, in explaining this vaccine. It was actually made around that Provincetown outbreak. When when those 346 men got COVID and four were hospitalized, they described those other cases, mild cases, asymptomatic cases, as breakthroughs. That's not a breakthrough. A breakthrough means failure. That wasn't a failure. That's a vaccine doing what it's supposed to do. The notion that this vaccine can provide what researchers describe as sterilizing immunity, meaning that you're not going to get any symptomatic infection, that you're not even going to na- get an asymptomatic infection is ridiculous because these kinds of viruses or these kinds of vaccines don't work that way. The influenza vaccine protects you against moderate to severe illness; it doesn't protect you very well against mild illness or asymptomatic infection. The vaccine we developed at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the rotavirus vaccine keeps babies out of the hospital and keeps them out of the ID- ICU. But ba- babies, despite vaccination, may still get a mild or asymptomatic infection that's okay. And I think, you know, I don't know if you ever listened to, there's another podcast called this week in virology, uh, Vince Racaniello out of Columbia does that, but John Udell, who uh, actually he and I trained together in a flu lab many decades ago um, at the Wistar Institute. He, he was on that show, the la- at least last one I heard. And he said it best. He said, your immune system did not evolve to make you PCR negative. True.
0: Well, speaking of Dr. Jonathan Udell, he wrote several months ago, get COVID or get a vaccine, right? That's your choice. Now we're kind of hearing get a vaccine and get COVID as well, but it'll be a mild case. Is that the new messaging? Well, that, that's, that's always should have been the message.
1: I think where, where we got um, seduced, if you will, was back in December of 2020 when we looked at the phase three trials. I mean, I'm on the vaccine, FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. When we looked at those trials, what you had, whether it was Moderna, Or Pfizer is you had 95% efficacy against all symptomatic illness, including mild illness. Those vaccines showed 95% efficacy against mild illness. But those were three-month trials. Those participants in those trials had just gotten a second dose. So they had high levels of neutralizing antibodies, which is what mediates protection against mild illness. But high levels of neutralizing antibodies don't last long. So what happens is over time, that will come down, which is what happened. And so the, the infection rate, meaning asymptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection rate, will go up. That's OK. And, and I think the whole booster thing has been especially confusing because it, you can argue reasonably that this pre-pandemic was probably always a three-dose vaccine for certain groups, people over 65, people who have or immune compromised, people who live in long-term care facilities. I think that's true and also arguably people who have comorbidities that are over 50 years of age. But if you're trying to prevent mild illness by giving a booster, you will for about three months. I mean, that's what will happen. You'll boost your neutralizing antibodies and for three months you'll be protected now. And then those neutralizing antibodies will come back down again. That's not a public health strategy. You can't just keep giving booster doses to keep neutralizing antibodies up so that you can prevent mild illness. The question is, has this vaccine held up in terms of protection against serious disease? And with the exception of the, those groups I just mentioned, it has. And that's why I, I've really had a problem. And this is for what I've gotten a fair amount of hate mail. I, I do have a problem with recommending booster doses for healthy young people. I, I just, it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't see the point of it. Similarly, and this also has gotten me a fair amount of hate mail because I was on another uh, podcast called MD, But I think that all the evidence from the CDC is that natural infection protects So if you can say, look, I've been naturally infected, do I really need to be vaccinated or do I need to be boosted? I think the answer is you can make that argument. And where where that falls, where that becomes important is people who've lost their jobs because they they haven't gotten the vaccine, even though they've been naturally infected. They can't go to the university. They want to go to school. They want to go to work in a job, you know, work in a particular place. They want to work. That's I just think that's wrong. But again, it's been hard to um, to to get to get uh, people to understand this.
0: You know, when you're talking about the boosters, I mean, just last Friday, there must have been, there were three drops all on the same day, right? Three papers about boosters, two from the CDC, one from JAMA. Um, I think one of the CDCs they were comparing vaccinated with and without boosters, so at least they were doing both. And just today, something popped in like a half hour ago from the British UK Health Health Security Agency that boosters significantly reduce the risk of death from Ovicron about six months after and all this stuff. So... They are really being pushed in all ages. So you think that's a messaging error? Because, I mean, if somebody were on the verge, I guess, of going out to get their first dose and they'd committed to the second dose, if they hear they're going to need a third dose, that might push them over the edge, I suppose. I don't know.
1: All I would argue is where is the evidence that a third dose, let's say, of an mRNA-containing vaccine decreases statistically significantly, decreases your instance of serious disease in healthy young people. And I, I conclude both of those words, healthy and young. I believe that that people who have comorbidities are at increased risk and, and will likely benefit from a third dose. But healthy young people, I mean, those 18 to 25 year olds who are going back to school, who are being required to get a third dose, I, all I'm saying is where's the evidence that that matters for protection against serious illness. I believe it matters for protection against mild illness, for at least for a few months. But if you're going to require it, if you're going to mandate it, then I think you have to have clear evidence for that. Because these, because like any medical product, vaccines are now without risk. I mean, we know that the mRNA vaccines can cause uh, myocarditis, which fortunately appears to be you know sh- short lived and temporary and self resolving, and that's all good. Um, but I, you can bet that over time, as we learn more and more about myocarditis, there may be a spectrum of illness. I mean, that's invariably the case. I mean, if you look six months later, a year later, and you do cardiac MRIs, are you going to see any evidence for residual scarring? I don't know. But I know that, and I certainly know vaccines work. I think vaccines need to be given. I think this entire population should be vaccinated. And then we can put this pandemic behind us. It's the booster story that I have problems with. Because if you're making an argument that it, if you want to use the word booster, realize that means you're boosting something. What are you boosting? You're boosting neutralizing antibodies for a relatively short period of time. Or are you making the case that the only way you can get high frequencies of memory T and B cells is to have a three-dose vaccine? Fine. then, And that's what well, I think is a reasonable argument for certain groups, certainly for people over seven. I mean, those data are clear. I think certainly for people who are immune compromised, that I believe. And I think people with comorbidities, likely. But I just I just feel like we're being we're being asked to do something for which there is not clear evidence. If, if the CDC has clear evidence that that this that a booster vaccine decreases hospitalization in healthy young people, please show that to us. Because that was not in either of those two MMWR papers or that JAMA paper that came out. It was associated with a press release where they said that, where they said booster dosing for all. They've recommended booster doses down to 12 years of age. I just I just don't see it.
0: It's, it's kind of oddly amusing that you get hate mail both sides so you get hate mail if you recommend a vaccination and then if you say you know we don't need a third one then you get hate mail from that side you man you cannot win (laughs) and you and you go with the eagles
1: (laughs) right exactly right
0: so But let's talk about the myocarditis because there have been several studies about that now. And I know that um, this Klein et al. study from September, they found it like 1 in 100,000. The original BARDA study, it was 1 to 5 in 100,000. Just recently, there was a study that came out. I think it was. Let me look. I think I have it here. Um, Another JAMA, um, Journal of the American Medical Association investigation, I think on January 25th, that analyzed some VAERS data, but they also subgrouped it a lot. And they found it to be maybe five per hundred thousand. That's still in the acceptable risk category.
1: Right, that's right. So, SARS it's, it's, is hard because it's—I uh, mean, everything has to be filed up because it's—it's it's, there's no screening for anybody can report to SARS. It, it's uh, it should be called SPARES, meaning Suspected Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, because you don't you don't know it's, whether it's really truly related. No, I think there was actually also a recent paper looking at the incidence of myocarditis following mRNA vaccination as compared to myocarditis following disease. This was a really good study. It came out of sort of the EPIC system, which is this electronic medical record system. Um, And you are 17 times more likely to get myocarditis if you're naturally infected than if you're vaccinated. Um, Because Rand Paul's been pushing this lately, you know, that you're more likely to get myocarditis with vaccination than natural infection. That's not true. It's also more severe. I mean, certainly with MIS-C, with this multisystem inflammatory disease, this post-infectious inflammatory phenomenon of the 5 to 13-year-old, um, that is, that myocarditis is certainly more severe.
0: They also had published, uh, again, Journal of American Medical Association, this interesting study on nocebo adverse events. I don't know if you saw that, but the placebo group had 50% of the same adverse events as the vaccination group in the trials. And they kind of tacitly surmised that that was because of, it was exacerbated by warnings of adverse events. Can you, I don't know if you read it or not, but that was kind of surprising to me that people, I know you can get sight pain, of course, you're getting an injection after all, but headache, fatigue, these other associated um, adverse events from the vaccine. And I will tell you that I never read warning labels because I will get every symptom, if I read the warning label of adverse events. So I get it. It's exacerbated by telling people that this is what can happen. Can you comment on that?
1: You know, I think it works both ways. I mean, I think there is a placebo response, meaning when, if you, this, this has been shown in many ways. If you, if you for example, give someone a, a, uh, a medicine and you say, you know, I really think this is going to work for you. As distinct from, well, I hope this works for you, or we'll see whether this works for you. It's actually more likely to work if you set the expectation that it's going to work. I mean, those kinds of studies have been done. That's placebo. I think from from the Latin to please, no no sort of from no carry, meaning to harm. Um, you do the other, thing. you you know say yeah, well you know you may want to watch out for you know for this this or this or this, and then suddenly those things happen because you think they're going to happen, um, which is to say, uh, who was Milton? I think right the the uh, the mind can make a, a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. I think that's it's a powerful thing.
0: All right, let's jump back to drift that you're concerned about, because this follows into my next question. Have you been, uh, we, I heard about this Walter Reed supervax, and supervax with nanoparticles, very exciting. Uh, have you been following that? Can you comment on that? What's that all about? Yeah, so, so
1: what those researchers did was they took ferritin and basically um, were able to uh, cause it to be in a conformational shape that sort of looked like a small soccer ball, and then you could, on each of those faces of the soccer ball, stick a SARS-CoV-2 uh, spike protein, and the hope being that then it would be sort of more of a pan-coronavirus vaccine. But, but again, I, I just make this argument, and Dr. Fauci actually was on TV the other day talking about a pan-coronavirus vaccine. Um, which in theory is going to recognize conformational epitopes a- across all coronaviruses, SARS-1, MERS, you know, the four human coronaviruses, you know, there's about nine coronaviruses, I think it's the SARS-CoV-2, I think is the ninth coronavirus, you know, then that's great, but it is highly aspirational. I mean, i, I it's, it's as much easier said, more <laughs> said than done. People have been working on a universal influenza vaccine for Forty years. I actually trained in a flu lab back in the early 1980s with a guy named Walter Gerhardt at the Wistar Institute. Um, He was working on a universal flu vaccine. And it seems obvious, right? We'll just take just take those regions of the virus that are confirmationally conserved across all strains and use that as a vaccine. But it's just much harder than you Remember, there's four strains of human coronavirus that circulate every year in this country. And there are some shared epitopes among those. There are T helper cell epitopes that are recognized among those four strains that are also found in SARS-CoV-2. And that may have actually helped us. And it's possible that that sort of population immunity with those four human coronaviruses has modified the effect of this virus, which is frightening to think of how bad it would have been had that not been true. So that's been raised as a possibility. But making universal uh, vaccines is not easy something dr gerhardt said to me when we were training that lab and the other person the other people one of the other people i was training with then was john udell i mean he was also in that lab and uh what dr gerhardt said i remember he said um uh, if you want a research career that lasts for the rest of your life study influenza
0: what about the Hotez vaccine? Uh, what's it called? Corabrex Cora or something? It's, uh, is that coming up for um, review under the FDA? And that, that should be one that can go. Oh, you haven't heard on that? No trial? I, I, I,
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, the, the um, so the way that that's done a little differently than the mRNA vaccines and that it's a it's a purified protein vaccine. But it's not like the hepatitis B vaccine, which is the whole surface uh, protein, or the he- human papillomavirus vaccine, which is the whole surface protein, or the Novavax vaccine, which is the whole SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Uh, this is actually just the receptor binding domain. It'll be interesting to see efficacy studies. They've done um, uh, you've seen studies, at least I've seen studies, at least seen press reports, because that's where we are these days, of like neutralizing antibodies. And that, that certainly looked very promising. And they use an interesting um, uh, adjuvant, this so-called CPG motif, which is cytosine, guanine, linked by a phosphodiester linkage, which makes your body think it's being infected by a bacteria. So it, it quickly makes, it, it sort of simulates the innate immune system. It's used in actually one of the hepatitis B vaccines. Heplasav B. So, love to see those data. Love to see the trials. Um, right now, we're just looking at neutralizing antibodies. But, you know, also you, you want to make sure, and, and, and Dr. Hotez can comment on this far more, um, uh, more informed than I am, but you, you make sure that, that as when you get to a smaller part of the protein that you're not in any way eliminating those conformational epitopes that are recognized by memory cell.
0: What's the latest on the um, vaccine trials in six to 24 months, People under, uh, people, under children under five. I know it didn't work so well the first time around. Any word on that? Are they up again?
1: I, I know as much as you do, meaning, which is to say, I read the same things you do on this. I, I'm on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. You'd think I would have more information about this. I don't. Well, I will when they submit, when Pfizer submits. Pfizer said that they're going to submit in March. What I've heard, probably what you've heard, is that, I'll take a step back. When, when, we, when the studies were done in the five to 11-year-old, that was a 10-microgram dose, which is a third of what was given to the 12- to 15-year-old, which was a 30-microgram dose, which is the same dose that was given to adults. So with a 5- to 11-year-old, they dropped down to a third of the dose. But nonetheless, if you look at – and it's sort of an arbitrary gathering, right? Why 5- to 11? Why not 4- to 11? I mean, is there a big difference between the 4- and 5-year-old? No. So you're basically arbitrarily picking – an age range five to eleven. Fortunately, it didn't matter whether you were five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, or eleven. When you got that ten microgram dose, you got a very good neutralizing antibody response, and that vaccine was 91% effective in the trial that roughly 2,400 child trial that they did. And now it's been in at least eight million children, um, and is safe. And it's not, there's not been a single case of myocarditis, so that's good. So now you drop down to the less than five-year-old. They then now the dose is not. 10 micrograms, 3 micrograms. And and my understanding, and again, I don't know this. It's just sort of what I've sort of heard or read, you know, from the, new, in the news reports, is that that while it, it seemed to be induced neutralizing antibodies in, in the, the younger group, it didn't induce it as well in the older group, meaning like, I guess, the three- and four-year-old. And so, hence, they were going to do a third dose. So, so I don't know. I really don't know. Well... We'll see it when we see it, but I can promise you this: um, you know, we're, we're hit by, the, by the time we see it, it's going to be we're going to be heading into spring, and there'll be less of a pressure, I think, to, to, to you know, from from the pandemic, I think. But we we are I am not going to vote yes on this unless there is a robust safety uh, uh, database and a robust efficacy trial. I, I we have to, I, I think we have to see that. We'll see.
0: You work at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I mean, what are you seeing in terms of admissions from children? And, uh, no specifics, but just statistically, what the age agents are, how sick are they? Is it COVID? What?
1: Yeah, so, so what we do in our hospital is any child who comes into the hospital, for whatever reason, whether it's because of COVID or just they just happen to have COVID, everybody gets tested for COVID who comes to the hospital. So a few weeks ago, it was like 30% of those who came into the hospital um, had COVID, although many were not, not coming in because of the COVID. Um, and the ICU, we had an X number of IC, a certain number of ICU admissions. This past week, I just saw the data this morning, it's definitely down. It's definitely come down, the number of kids who are coming into the hospital with COVID or coming to the ICU with COVID. So we, we have turned the corner in the city, as appears to be true also in many cities in the Northeast.
0: Do you see spread among the hospital staff? Or are you guys, is it are masking and all this is working still?
1: We're pretty good. I mean, it's like walking to the hospital, looks like we're all walking through plutonium. I mean, you know, we have the NP5 respirators, we've got, you know, goggles, you know, we have gloves, gowns. Um, we're, we're pretty good. I, I feel pretty safe in the hospital.
0: Let's move on. You bet your life. This is something I've wanted to talk to you about. So you mentioned in the book xenotransplantation, I'm sorry, xenotransplantation, pig heart transplants. It has actually happened. Have you been following that? And what do you want to say about it? You know, no, a,
1: a, a couple things. First of all, so so I well, I had said in in the book that I thought a next well, so there's four thousand people roughly that are that are awaiting heart transplantation. Um, you know, about a, a, a certain. I'm no, sorry, 4,000 are waiting heart transplantation, but as many as 1,300 will die while waiting. I mean, hearts are precious. It's hard to find them. And so what do you do? Knowing that you may be one of those people who is going to die while waiting, what do you do? So here's, this was at the University of Maryland, where there was a pig heart transplant, a genetically modified pig heart. So you can, you can, as you can genetically modify pig valves, you can genetically modify the pig heart so that you're less likely to see a uh, proteins on the surface of that that pig's heart that you will see is foreign and therefore reject the heart. So that was a successful transplant. We'll see how that plays out. The other thing that was interesting actually, just because it gets back to COVID, because everything's always COVID all the time, was that that heart that transplant in, in Boston, where there was a young man, I think he was in his 30s, who who refused vaccination. And so therefore they would, even though he was up for a heart transplant, I think their heart transplant was was there for him, they wouldn't transplant it because you know because They because hearts are precious and and why should it go to somebody who's going to put themselves at risk? Because when you get a heart transplant, you're going to be given immune suppressive therapies, which means that you're at especially high risk of SARS. You know, why should should that person get a transplant as compared to somebody who's going to, you know, take care of themselves and make that transplant much more likely to work? So that that got sort of was mixed reaction in the press. Some people were for it. Some people were against it. But it's not unusual for any transplant that if you're not taking care of yourself, that you sort of move down on the list.
0: What, was he up for another pig heart transplant, or was that? A... I,
1: I never heard about a pig heart with him. I, what the father had said, as I just read this paper. I mean, what the father said about his son, who's refusing vaccination. He said, you know, quote, he believes in it very strongly, so much so that he's willing to die for that belief, which is amazing. I mean, he, you know, it's like the the uh, you know, if you look at at it, it's amazing how 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 strongly held these beliefs are. I mean, you look at Kyrie Irving, who can't play at home. In, in, again for the Brooklyn Nets at home because you have to be vaccinated if you're going to walk into Brooklyn Nets Brooklyn on uh, that stadium and so he he forfeits 17 million dollars because he's getting two shots I, you know you're not he's not asking him to get a heart transplant just get two shots and you 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 get 17 million dollars um, you know and then you look at, at at Novak Djokovic you know who who could defend his Australian Open title who could be the the one more grand slam titles than anybody in history but no He doesn't get a vaccine. So he doesn't get to do that. It's a vaccine. I just I don't get it. I really don't get it. It's hard. It's hard to me to understand this.
0: Have they proven that they were actually exposed so that they had COVID? And would that if they had it and they're now have that natural immunity, would that play back into what you said at the beginning? People getting fired even?
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's right. It, it's I think the ship has sailed on this. They, it, it, while it is true that if you've been naturally infected and you get a vaccine, that you will have a boost in your immune response. Not surprising. Um, do you need it, is the question. Do you, does it really cause you to have longer-lived protection against serious illness? And I think for certain groups that, that might be true, but for for otherwise healthy young people, I think it's, it, there is not evidence for that. I mean, the CDC just published data on, the, on January 28th showing natural infections, highly protective, as protective as vaccination, at least in, in that, that study, which was sort of at the end of the Delta experience.
0: Well, I'm not a, I don't follow sports. I know these guys are sports people and yeah, forfeiting 17 million, but something got in his head that cost him $17 million. That's for sure. <laughs> Amazing. Back to you about your life. I mean, with the, all these developments in mRNA technology, um, there's no respiratory syncytial virus vaccine, RSV. Are you hopeful for that? Is this technology going to help you with that? Because you have a whole chapter in there on medical advancements, vaccines, one of the biggest medical advancements. So what about RSV and the new technology? Does that look promising? Or, do
1: you- Well, Moderna is, is working on an on mRNA vaccine for RSV. We'll see. Well, you know, and certainly there are, um, the mRNA technology um, is now being applied to a better malaria, or not but just a better malaria vaccine, a better tuberculosis vaccine, a, um, you know, maybe a universal flu vaccine. But, uh, you know, you're always, I think the point of the book, You Bet Your Life, is that you always learn as you go, always. Uh, there is no example for any of the nine major advances I talk about in this book, you know, whether it's antibiotics or vaccines or chemotherapy or biologicals, um, where you haven't had to pay some sort of price for knowledge that's just the way it goes. And we never accept that. We can't believe it, right? I mean, even just for these technologies, no one would have predicted myocarditis as a consequence of mRNA vaccines. No one would have predicted this blood clotting problem with Johnson and Johnson and Astrazeneca's vaccine, which can be fatal, rare, but real. No one would have predicted that because you always learn as you go, which is why at the beginning of this, and I actually talk about this in the book a little bit because the book was written, started before the, the pandemic, but was written during the pandemic. You know, the, the, um, you know, the statements by, you know, by the CEOs of, of, uh, of two of the pharmaceutical companies where, you know, when they had done phase one trials involving maybe 25 or 30 people. And then they, they would say, like, well, and we can make tens of millions of doses. You know, how about a little, a little slow down? Nature gives up its secrets slowly, grudgingly. And with a human price, there is going to be a price to pay. There always is. How about a little humility? Because it, it, this nature Demands
0: that. Well, in your book, you go through nine things, right? So, vaccines, antibiotics. I can't list them all. Anesthesia, serendipity, um, things like that. But w- there are other things that you've spoken about before, such as uh, preventive things, such as hand. Was it Semmelweis and hand washing? Um, vitamin C and nutrition from Lind, the guy with the cholera, RCTs, the first RCTs with cholera. And do you think mask wearing is going to be the new basic preventative? That'll be the new etiquette like hand washing and nutrition and things like that. Is this the, our new normal?
1: I think for some people it will be. It's certainly in, in other countries. Uh, and if you go to Japan in the winter, I mean, people wear masks. It's you know, so there, there are it, it, it is that that culture. You have to wear a tight fitting mask. It, it can't be just a mask that's sort of hanging on around your mouth, but doesn't cover your nose or just the surgical masks are good, but not perfect. I mean, it's really the KN95s or N95s or certainly, but you know, wearing N95 for a day is pretty darn uncomfortable. But I'm sure that as things settle down you're still gonna see people wearing masks. Uh, I, I, at least a certain group of people will still wear masks.
0: And I have one final question for you. Um, it's Dr. Paul Offit. Uh, it's a hypothetical here. Um, Well, first, let me ask you, did you go to Eagles games or did you watch on TV?
1: Well, I didn't go to Eagles. Well, last year you couldn't go to Eagles games. Uh, This year I I just didn't, I did. Yes. I went to two Eagles games this year. Actually one game I sat in the the owner's box. That was cool. And then another game, I said, another friend actually had a box. So I, I, although normally we just sit down there, you know, down there with the the rest of the world down there, but just happened to be that I was asked to be in these boxes. So so
0: I went to, so you went out into a big crowd with a mask and everything, and you felt perfectly comfortable with that. Yeah,
1: no, I, I mean, I'm vaccinated. I'm over 65, so I'm boosted. Um, I wear a mask when I'm when I'm around those people. But when you know, but when we were all in you couldn't get into that box unless you were vaccinated. Everybody had to be vaccinated. vaccinated. So I, I, I think that if you're vaccinated and you're asymptomatic. The likelihood that you're shedding a a quantity of infectious virus that puts others at risk is really really small and see that's the problem with the the pcr test that you were talking about earlier i mean it's the the there was a study that was just done and reported in the last couple weeks or so where what they did was they took people who were vaccinated and had mild illness and they compared them to people who weren't vaccinated but had mild illness so the nature of the symptomatic illness was the same in those two groups and they, they did, then they, they looked at the thing you really care about, which is not doing an antigen test. And it's not doing a PCR test. It's doing the quantity of infectious virus that's being secreted. So you take you know, swabs from the nose or throat, and then you do... You go to the laboratory, because this is not a commercially available test, and you you do plaquing assays or you do focus forming assays, which tells you the quantity of infectious virus, the infectious virus titer. That's what you want to know. The higher the infectious virus titer, the more likely you are to be contagious, the lower the less likely. So what they found was that 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 if you looked at PCR in those two groups, there was no difference. Even if you looked at cycle times, you know, which which is going to detect more or less viral RNA. No difference i mean the lower the cycle time the more the viral RNA. I ended up thinking was always well if that's true if it's a cycle time of 10 as compared to a cycle time of 50 then there's more viral rna therefore there must be more infectious virus that was wrong that was wrong so what they found was that if you were vaccinated and had a mild illness you shed much less virus for a much shorter period of time than someone who was unvaccinated who had a mild illness. so that was another communications error that came out of the i think out of that Provincetown outbreak, you know, what they did was they looked at PCR one day afterwards in people who were vaccinated and unvaccinated and didn't see a difference and said, you're just as so contagious. And that was wrong. You're less contagious if you're vaccinated, clearly less contagious. So see, people heard that and they thought, well, what difference does it make whether I get vaccinated or not? I'm going to be as contagious either way. And that's not true. So there was a lot of, and, and I think the other communications there was, I think, when President Biden stood up on, on August 18th and said, as of, of, uh, of September 20th, we're going to have booster dosing available for everybody over 16, thus sending the message that two doses wasn't protective, when it is protective for most people, most certainly healthy young people. So I just, I think we keep inadvertently damning this vaccine, and I think have um, caused somewhat of a loss of confidence, I think, in the agencies that are making recommendations, sadly, because they couldn't be more dedicated. I mean, if you to know people like Rochelle Walensky at the CDC or Tony Fauci at NIID or Vivek Murthy at the Surgeon General's Office, these are great people. I mean, they're wonderful scientists. They couldn't work harder for the American public to try and do the right thing. But I think some of the messaging has been confounding.
0: And also, <laughs> there's been so much messaging in about a year. I mean, there's been so much coming in. It's just unbelievable. I think a PubMed search a year ago yielded 30,000 papers. I just did it yesterday. It's 222,000 papers. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous the amount of information to digest and then put into a simple soundbite that gets on TV. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know. Two last questions. One is, look in your crystal ball. It's October 2022. You're Dr. Paul Offit. You got a new book. You bet your life. You're invited to come speak at a convention in Las Vegas. You got to fly out there, hang out with 500 people. How you feel about doing that? i would
1: do that oh really i, I imagine i would do that i, I would i mean I, you're talking about that skeptics conference <laughs> it's like anything that
0: morning. you would you get called you get you go do dinners and speeches everywhere that you have to fly. I, I, I go out to dinner i, I go out to dinner here. but i mean in that's a large group like that where you have to fly okay that's great
1: you know i i, I think I, I i'm vaccinated and boosted i i um and i do wear i would wear a mask on the plane i think i would wear a mask if I'm when I'm sitting down, I think I wear a mask I, I, I until I, I feel like we're over this this particular hump. I worry now we may we may get over this hump. I mean, that this Omicron hump may may we may get soon get over in the next couple of weeks. And then we'll see what emerges next winter. But but this is a winter virus. I and mean, we'll I think we'll see it again next winter. We'll see it throughout the year. But I think it'll really sort of come up more in the winter months uh, because that's what happened the last few years.
0: And you're correct. I was referring to Sicon Sicon 22. I think they announced the days. I just thought, you know. Am I going to have the guts to go? (laughs) All right, last question. Um, When I interviewed you about um, Overkill, you were actually already working on You Bet Your Life. (laughs) You Bet Your Life, it's finished, it's out. I must ask, what are you working on now? I
1: think I'm interested in another book. This book, um, the working title is Contagious. I'm sorry, it's Casualties. Casualties is the working title. And, And the subtitle is How a War Against a Virus Became a War Against Ourselves. It, and it's that, it's it's all the, the things that, that caused us to continue to allow this virus to spread and mutate and create variants, because we just simply refuse to do the things we need to do to end this pandemic in, in a manner much worse than in many other countries. And I'm just trying to sort of get at what actually is behind all that. That's the purpose of this book.
0: Oh, and so you are actually writing. Well, congratulations. Um, well, that'll be an interesting read, especially because <laughs> the information is timely and it's going to remain timely. Well, I mean that's a book that you'll have to update after it get published. <laughs> <laughs> like you bet your life, well,
1: not I've done the book that the pandemic will be passes, <laughs> given how slowly I'm getting this done. So
0: all right, Dr. offett I greatly appreciate your being here once again. Enjoy the rest of the winter. I hope to see you at some point. Is there a final comment you'd like to make? No, just hang in there. I, we're
1: almost there. I really do think we're gonna get past this Omicron wave. Um, or whatever you want to call it, flash flood, and then, 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 and then, just you know, if we could just vaccinate, especially people less than thirty, because they're they're the groups that are least vaccinated right now. So I think pediatricians really need to up their game here and try and make sure everybody gets vaccinated. Yeah, you know, we've had a vaccine for five to eleven year olds for you know almost three months now, and nineteen percent of five to eleven year olds are vaccinated. I, you know, when we ran a children's hospital in Philadelphia, kids get admitted who are over five years of age and go to the ICU, and none of them were ever vaccinated. It's really hard to watch
0: what do their parents say can I ask that question parents or do
1: you're vaccinated either you're near, near, near the sibling
0: I gotta say I mean do you have a follow-up conversation it's hard because
1: you have a child who's suffering and and to bring up the issue of not vaccinating them or them not getting vaccinated just uh, it's another level of guilt it's hard to have that conversation what, what you can say is, and I've said this, is I remember one family, I said to the mother, you know, do you have children at home? Yes. Have they been sick? No. Do you, have, you, have they been vaccinated? No. Could, could you please consider vaccinating them since COVID is in your home? And no, wasn't going to do it. Oh, she still wouldn't. no? And, and, and it was interesting Is the father was vaccinated. And I asked the father why he was vaccinated. He said, because I have to be vaccinated for work. So mandates do work at some level.
0: Nothing educates like the disease, right? That's the quote. Apparently that's not true in this case. No,
1: because people just deny what's in front of them. I that, know if you saw that movie, uh, Don't Look Up, that's sort of the basis of that movie, how we're able to simply just deny something that is right
0: in front of us. I, I know it would be a difficult conversation and you don't want to make anybody feel more guilty, but the only thing that might come out of that would be what went wrong with the messaging. You know what happened?
1: I think it's a cultural thing. It, it's it, it's 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 become the zeitgeist. It, it's 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 how people identify themselves. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go with this this you know government bullshit. I'm I'm gonna you know do what I want to do. They're not gonna tell me what to do. They're not gonna tell me to wear a mask. They're not gonna tell me to get a vaccine. I'm in charge of my own fate. And so, go off get off my back. And and you know you're a tough guy, right? That just don't tell me to do that. Don't tell me I have to mask my children. Don't have to tell me I have to vaccinate my children. It's, um, it's just part of the cultural identity, which
0: is ingrained and hard to shake. Jeez, was that the great note I wanted to end on? So, no, hang in there. We're going to get through this. Um, things are looking up. That's the message, right? That's right. Yes. All right, Dr. Offit. Dr. Offit has been my guest here on 502 Conversations. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Take hey, care. Welcome. Talk to you soon.